Please open with me uh, now to God's uh, holy word. Our scripture reading today is going to be out of Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, our text is verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 7 and verses 1 through 8. Revelation uh, chapter 6, we have had the opening of the first six seals. Uh, Remember, it is only the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world who is worthy to open these seals. Christ is at the very center of God's purposes in history. Uh, The first six of those seals have been opened, the first four containing horsemen, the fifth, the revelation of the martyrs under the altar. Uh, Number uh, six was the revelation of that great day of judgment. We come now to Revelation chapter seven, and it's something of an interlude that we have in Revelation seven before the opening of uh, the seventh seal, which will reveal uh, the various uh, uh, trumpets. Well, let's now uh, hear God's word. Our text today, again, is just Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Uh, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's seek the help of the living God again in prayer. Lord, this is your uh, holy word. This word is uh, all sufficient uh, to equip us unto every good work. It reveals for us the way of salvation through the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. You have not left us in the dark. But, O Lord, you have shown us of yourself. And we pray now in this coming hour, Lord, that this seed of your word would fall on good soil and would bear abundant fruit in our lives. Most of all, we long to see and know more of the Lord Jesus Christ through this passage that has been revealed for us today. O Lord, give help to the one who preaches your word that it might be preached Uh, with truth and accuracy and clarity and, above all, with power. And, Lord, would you give grace to each one who hears, Lord, that we would receive this, your word, with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Uh, amen. How can I know as a Christian that having begun this life of faith, that I should persevere to the end? How should I know that the trials and difficulties that have been brought into my life are meant not for my destruction, but for my growth in grace and into the likeness of uh, Jesus Christ? Uh, How can I know and receive encouragement to keep on keeping on uh, in the Christian life? I wonder, where would you go in Scripture to answer these questions? questions that I've just raised. Perhaps your own mind is running to a variety of different passages in Holy Scripture uh, to which you might go, but what I want to suggest to you today that the book of Revelation is one of the very best books of the Bible to go to to answer questions like that. And in fact, the passage that we have just read out of Revelation chapter 7 is a passage which addresses those very questions that I have uh, just raised. So what I want us to do today is to open up this passage uh, together, uh, to interpret it rightly, and to seek to apply it to our lives and to see what a practical help, a passage like this, which at the outset might seem kind of obscure and difficult, nonetheless, what a tremendous practical help it is to our faith even today. As we try to open up this passage together uh, this morning, uh, we're going to do so really just under two simple headings. Uh, First of all, uh, we're going to consider the identity of the sealed, and then lastly, the work, or excuse me, the work of God's sealing. So the identity of the sealed followed by the work of God's sealing. And we're actually going to approach this uh, passage in reverse order, kind of working from the end back towards the beginning. As I studied this passage and thought how best to present this material, this is what I thought would make the most sense in bringing some clarity and light to these verses that are before us. So first of all, the identity of the sealed out of verses 5 through 8, followed by the work of God's sealing in verses 1 through 4. First of all, the identity of uh, the sealed. And excuse me, this is verses 4 through 8. Uh, and then our second point will be verses 1 through 3. So verses 4 through 8, uh, the identity of the sealed. Verse 4 begins by telling us that I heard the number of the sealed. Here it's going to tell us who are those who are going to receive the seal. Now again, in the second half of today's sermon, I'll describe what that seal is. But right now, I'm focusing on this part of it. Who are the number of those who are sealed? What is the identity of those who receive this seal that is given? And we are told that the number of the sealed is 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then verses 5 through 8 go and list... 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. For those mathematically challenged, you add up those 12,000 and you come to the number 144,000. Well, what is it that this is possibly speaking about? Well, a very common interpretation of these verses, uh, understand the 144,000 here to be a literal number 
of ethnic Jews who will be converted to Christ after the church is raptured and who bear witness to the gospel at the beginning of the Antichrist's reign of terror. Uh, They believe uh, that God will use these Jewish evangelists, these 144,000, to convert then millions of Jews and Gentiles to Christ during the seven years of great tribulation. Now, this is one view of these verses. This view is associated with a movement called dispensationalism, which makes up a very large number of Bible-believing Christians today. So that's a common view of these verses. But in contrast to that position, another view, and the one which I think is correct, and we're going to explain this in just a few minutes, understand the 144,000 here to be a figurative number, which represents the full number of the people saved. That is, all of the elect, all of those redeemed by Christ's blood, all of those truly converted to Jesus Christ in the present age in which we live between Christ's first and second comings. And this number here doesn't consist solely of Jews, but of both Jews and Gentiles who come to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. And it is this full number of the saved who are sealed by the living God. Now, how is it that we decide between these two options which one is correct? Well, I want to explore it really by a series of three different questions that we're going to ask. And the first of the questions is this. Is this number, 144,000, to be taken literally or figuratively? Well, to answer that question, it makes sense, I want to suggest, to take this number figuratively, since the numbers throughout the book of Revelation are numbers which are to be taken figuratively. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's like Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Uh, God reveals truth through different figures and symbols. And this number, 144,000, is certainly one which seems to be highly symbolic. How do you get to the number 144,000? Well, you do it by multiplying 12 times 12 times 10 cubed. And each one of these numbers are numbers which are highly significant in the book of Revelation. Uh, For the number 12, uh, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, They're mentioned here in Revelation chapter 7, but also mentioned in Revelation chapter 21 and verses 12 and 13, where when the new Jerusalem is revealed, it is described as having 12 gates, with the twelve sons of Israel inscribed on those gates. But the number twelve in the book of Revelation also represents the twelve apostles. Again, in Revelation 21, we're explicitly told this, that the wall of the New Jerusalem also has twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so here, within the book of Revelation itself, you have this number 12, given significance both for the 12 tribes of the Old Covenant, but also the 12 tribes of the New Covenant. 
as it were, the church in the old covenant represented and the church in the new covenant. But then that number 10 is also a very significant number. It's a number which means completion. And so the 10 cubed is really a number which represents a perfection. Here really is the complete church of both the Old Testament and the New Testament in all of its fullness, the complete number of those who are saved by Jesus Christ. Uh, This number, 144,000, again, in the midst of a book which uses numbers time and again symbolically, is a number which is a beautiful symbolic depiction of the redeemed church of both Old and New Testaments. This leads us to a second question then. And the question is, does this, do these verses describe those who are converted at the beginning of a seven-year period of tribulation, or does it represent those who are saved throughout all of history? Now, the answer to this question here depends on how you understand Revelation as a whole. Uh, there are many who read Revelation as a chronological account of future events that are associated with the return of Christ. So that is, all the way from chapter 4, all the way to chapter 22, you have a series of events taken in order, one after another, all describing a future period just prior to and then including the return of the Lord Uh, Jesus Christ. And so if you take that view, then the events of chapter 7 follow after the events of chapter 6. And so under that view, this ceiling described in chapter 7 refers to some unique historical occurrence after the six seals have been opened. However, I would argue that to take this view misreads the book of Revelation. And actually, you will run into any number of difficulties and problems if you take it in, uh, if you take it in that way uh, uh, um, uh, throughout the book of Revelation. And it makes much more sense to recognize that Revelation does not consist of a chronological account, but rather consists of a series of overlapping visions. And so in chapter 7 and verse 1, when John says, after this I saw, it's referring to John's next vision. But the vision here is not one which necessarily chronologically will take place after the visions of chapter 6. But rather, it happens as it were simultaneously. And so whereas chapter 6 refers to that entire period between Christ's first first and second coming, revealing the judgments which will come upon the entire world during that time. Chapter 7 now reveals for us what happens to the people of God during that same time. And when we take this view of Revelation, and as we move through the book of Revelation, we'll see that this understanding of of the text, as it, as it were, describing events that happen between the first and second comings of Christ. Not necessarily some kind of 
chronological order, okay, when we take it in that way, it allows us to understand the sealing in Revelation chapter 7 in the same way that the rest of the New Testament describes sealing. That what we have is not some unique historical occurrence occurring at the beginning of some beginning of a, of a seven-year period of tribulation, but rather simply the sealing which a passage like Ephesians 1.13 that we're going to talk of later refers to, a sealing by the Holy Spirit that occurs in the lives of all those who are genuinely belong to Christ. And when we understand Revelation in this way, let me just say, as describing the church now, and not just a sequence of events just prior to Christ's return, it gives this book a kind of fresh relevance to us. What John describes here is not some futuristic puzzle for us to try to decipher that has very little to do with the church today. But rather, John is talking directly to that first century church. And indeed, he's talking directly to the 21st century church. And he's talking to us and to our experience. And he's saying to us, you are the ones who are sealed. And so again, what this is describing, I would argue, uh, concerns those who are saved throughout all of history this leads to the third question then. And the third question is this. Does this describe only ethnic Jews who are saved? Or does it describe the entire church, both Jew and Gentile? Now those who read this as describing simply ethnic Jews say, well, this is the plain reading of the text, is it not? Uh, these 144,000 are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it goes through various tribes of Israel, saying 12,000 from those various tribes. So that may seem to be the plain reading of the text. But however, against this, let me raise a couple of points. First, to say this, that the list of tribes that were given here in verses 5 through 8, is a very unusual list. You'll notice that Joseph is listed, but also one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh, is listed, but his other son, Ephraim, is omitted. And also in this list, you may notice that the tribe of Dan is omitted. And so even this list does not include all Israel. And what is more, if we were to say that this is referring to a conversion of ethnic Jews out of these various tribes just prior to Christ's return, we want to ask the question simply, well, where are these tribes today? Ten of these tribes disappeared with the Assyrian conquest in 714 AD. What is more, ethnic Jews have intermarried both between tribes and also with Gentiles. And it would be impossible today to distinguish who ethnically belongs to uh, which tribe. But if you say, well, it isn't impossible for God to revive these tribes just prior to Christ's coming, well, I simply want to ask you, does that mean as well, if we're going to read the book of Revelation consistently, literally in that way, that God is planning to revive 
the other na ancient nation states that are mentioned in Revelation as enemies of Israel also. You see, perhaps, I think that there is a better understanding of the mention of Israel here in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, perhaps we should understand the mention of Israel here in the same way that the rest of the New Testament understands Israel. That is, that the church of Jesus Christ uh, is the fulfillment of Israel, that the Israel of the Old Testament is continued now in the people of God uh, today. Uh, that uh, Israel is, uh, 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 that the language of Israel is often now applied to the church. So in first, when Peter, in chapter 1 and verse 1 of 1 Peter, describes the church, he calls the church the elect exiles of the dispersion. Or in Romans 2 and verse 29, a true Jew is described not as one whose circumcision is outward and physical, that is, containing the, the distinguishing marks of ethnic Israel, but rather is a circumcision of the heart, that is, regeneration. In Galatians 3, 7, Abraham is the father of who? He's the father of all who believe. In Galatians 6, in verse 16, the church is described as the Israel of God. In Philippians 3, in verse 3, it says that we who worship by the Spirit of God are the circumcision. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, uh, Peter piles up a series of descriptive terms that once applied to Israel, and he now applies them to the church. But you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. You see, if you understand Israel and the church to be two distinct peoples of God, with two distinct purposes in the plan of God, then you misunderstand the beautiful, the beautiful way that the Bible sees the church as the continuation and the fulfillment of, uh, of Israel. Joel Beakey puts it this way. He says that the church is the spiritual embodiment of the nation of Israel and therefore is heirs to all the covenants and to all the promises made to the Old Testament saints. And so when we come then to Revelation chapter 7, ought we not to see that Israel is mentioned here in the same way that Israel is mentioned in the rest of the New Testament as a symbolic depiction here of the whole people of God, Jew and Gentile alike. And when we see it in this way, we can make sense of some of the unique features of this list. Why, for example, is Judah mentioned first? among these tribes? Is it not because it is the line of the Messiah? And it's a way of representing Christ as the head of his covenant people. But why are Dan and Ephraim omitted? Well, you might recall that these two tribes established idolatrous worship at the time of the division of the kingdom. And so it's simply a symbolic way of saying that all idolaters shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Similarly, this list uh, takes the form of a kind of census, similar to the censuses that we see in the Old Testament, 
uh, that were formed for military purposes. And so this is a way of describing the church as the church militant. Those who in this age are fighting as part of the Lord's army, fighting against the world, the flesh, and uh, the devil. So, dear friends, what we have here is this 144,000 who are described symbolically as a representation of the complete church made up of both Jew and Gentile. And this is why, then, when we look at this text, we see that the 144,000 mentioned in verse 4 are described with different language, but it's the same group of people described throughout Revelation 7. And so in, in verse 3, uh, this, those who are sealed are described as the servants of God. And it's not just a limited or a few of the servants of God, but it is all who are the servants of God who are the 144,000. And then later in Revelation 7, as it describes these same saints in heaven, it's going to describe them in, uh, in verse 9 as uh, people from every tribe and people and language and nation who are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These are those described in verse 14 as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of of the Lamb. And in fact, in Revelation 14, verses 3 and 4, uh, we're going to run into that language of the 144,000 again. And there, the 144,000 are clearly described as those who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And so, again, we don't want to limit that number, but say it is a symbolic number representing the whole of the redeemed church. Okay? We've belabored this point because it is one that is so frequently misunderstood. And I think when we understand it rightly, it opens up just a world of glorious, relevant truth in the book of Revelation. But let me just ask this question now. Why is the church described in this way? Why, using this symbolic figure of the 144,000, why of the, these tribes of, of Israel? And I think it is described in this particular way. Uh, to emphasize here that the church consists of a number. It is a number in which each one is known by God, and it is a number in which each one of that number uh, takes part so as to make up the perfect, complete, whole church of God. In other words, it emphasizes that here is a company known of God in which none are missing. Each one who is present matters to God. And these, just like Israel of the Old Testament were his special people, these are those who are special to the Lord. You know, in Revelation 7 verse 9 that we're going to see next time I preach to you in, in a few weeks, in Revelation 7 and verse 9, this same company is going to be described as a vast multitude which no one can number. And that's, as it were, looking at this body from a human perspective. John, as it were, with his eyes, will see this body in heaven, and he's going to say, the number is 
Too many for me to count. I can't number them all. But here, in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, he's looking at the same group as part of the church militant in this life, and he's saying here is a number in which every single one of them is known and counted by God. They matter. 2 Timothy 2, 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. I tell you, this ought to be a tremendous comfort uh, to you and me. It means that if you are a Christian, you are one who is not forgotten, but is intimately known and numbered by God. And without you, the church would not be whole and complete. That's an amazing thought, because you and I, in our, in our human experience, go through events all of the time in which we are easily forgotten. Okay? You walk into a stadium full of 50,000 people for a ball game, and you're amazed at the vastness of the number. Do you think the players would notice if you weren't there cheering them on that day? Not at all. You don't matter, Right? And sometimes we look out at the vastness of this universe, galaxy upon galaxy, and we think, you know, we're just like a little blip in the midst of this all. So many people, such a vast universe, do I even matter? Do I even count? Of what use is it? And here is the book of Revelation saying, you most certainly do. The Lord has you in his number. You are part of that whole, complete church. Without you, it would not be complete. I think of those beautiful words of the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your, listen how personal that is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all, not just of other people's sins, but for all of my sins with his precious blood. He has set not just others, but he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a single hair can fall from my head. And indeed, all things must work together, not just for others, but for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me, and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Do you see how personal that is? And that's the emphasis of, that's one of the great emphases of the Bible. Oh, to be redeemed means that you matter and are counted by the living God. He knows you personally. And without you, the church would not be complete. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Praise such a God as this, the identity of the seal. But now let's move on, secondly, uh, to consider uh, uh, the sealing work of God. The sealing work of God. We find this in verses 1 through 3 of our passage. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Again, we're going to kind of take this in a little bit of reverse order. 
I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, and this angel has the seal of the living God. And then jumping down to verse 3, he's going to say, Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until this, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, so we've just seen who it is that's being sealed, everyone that's redeemed by Jesus Christ. What is it that they're receiving? They are receiving the seal of the living God. What is the seal of the living God? What does that mean? Well, a seal, uh, as it's used in Scripture, really can represent three different ideas. Let me just back up for a second to say that this is an idea that is used in other places in Scripture. And so actually in the Old Testament, the Old Testament background to this is Ezekiel 9 and verse 14, uh, which uh, in Ezekiel's vision talks about a coming judgment that is going to come upon, uh, 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 upon the people. But before that judgment comes, Ezekiel 9 and, verse, uh, 9 and verse 4, excuse me, 9 and verse 4 says, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And so here are those who dedicated to the Lord and to his ways are sealed with this seal. They receive this mark that is placed upon their foreheads. Now in the New Testament, Ephesians 1 and verse 13 makes it clear that every single believer is sealed or has this mark in that way. Ephesians 1.13, after describing the redemption that we've received in Christ, says that in him, in Christ, all, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promise of promised Holy Spirit. What uh, happens at the moment of your conversion when you are saved is that you receive the Holy Spirit as a kind of seal. And that's what Revelation 7 verse 3 is describing. It's the seal which all the servants of God uh, receive. Now what is that what does that seal refer to? Let me point out three different things. And the first of them is this. It refers to ownership. To be sealed means to be possessed or owned by another. Notice that the seal is placed on their foreheads. Now, slaves were marked in a similar manner uh, to indicate who owned the slaves and to whom those slaves owed service. And here we are described as servants or slaves of God who have received the mark which indicate that we are owned by none other than the living God himself. Uh, this mark, it says, is placed on our foreheads. Uh, Revelation 14.1 uses a similar kind of description that the 144,000 has his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Or Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4 that says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It's not saying literally that we're going to have something on our foreheads. It's, it's a symbolic way of indicating 
that we have been sealed, and that seal is a mark of ownership. In that sense, it is distinguished from the mark of the beast that you see in Revelation 13 in verse 7, again, which is a sign of ownership uh, by uh, this world. So if you are one who is sealed, if you are among the saved who are sealed, it's a reminder that you are not your own, that you belonged to another, that you belong to the living God and to the Lord Jesus Christ who has bought you and secured you for his own. You know, there's, it's so important that as, uh, as people that we, we belong, we like to belong, we belong to a nation. We belong to a community of people. You belong to a family. Okay, Maybe if you've taken up a certain hobby, you belong to a community of people who also like that hobby that you've taken, that you've taken up. We're, we're kind of people that like to belong. Well, this is saying that there's no better place to belong than to belong to the living God. Not to a dead idol, Not to simply some kind of ideal, not to some way of living, not to a hobby, but to belong rather to the maker of heaven and earth. If you have been sealed by him, it's his mark of ownership that is placed upon you. You belong to him. He is now the one that you must serve. So a seal is a mark of ownership. But secondly, a seal is a mark of authentication. Authentication. When a king would use his signet ring to seal a document, it was a mark that that document is the genuine thing. It stands. It's not a fake. Well, friends, when you and I are sealed by the Holy Spirit, when he fills us, it is a mark that we are a genuine child of God. If you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, You are his. You are authentically his. Friends, this has tremendous implications for our own assurance. I wonder if you sometimes fear that you will make shipwreck of your faith. Maybe perhaps you realize just how weak you are and how prone to stumble. Uh, how easily you uh, fall. Well, how good it is to know that your assurance as a Christian depends not on your own strength, but on the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He has marked you as an authentic child of God. Now, we ought not to use this doctrine as a way to justify kind of loose living. Well, I have the Holy Spirit, so I can live however I like. Well, that's a sign that Perhaps the Spirit is not dwelling in you. But rather, dear friends, what we ought, though, to use this as is as a true child of God to realize what tremendous comfort it brings. In other words, what assurance can I possibly have that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and still be a Christian? And my assurance does not depend upon the strength of my own resolution or on my own commitment or on my own dedication or on my own determination to serve the Lord. I am not the one who keeps myself in the faith. But rather, 
That is the work of the living God. And what's going to make me to still be a Christian tomorrow is not my own strength of determination, but it's first of all the electing choice of God in eternity past. It is the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ that having taken away my sins, takes it away finally and for sure. And it is on that continued active, powerful work of the Holy Spirit inside of me who's going to continue to create faith and enable me to believe and reveal for me more of the Lord Jesus Christ and give me a love for his law. It depends entirely on God. And so the Holy Spirit is that mark of authentication that when God saves us, he seals us in this way and he says, you are mine and mine not only for a day, but for all eternity. He knows those who are genuinely his. It's a mark of authentication. And friends, so much of the truth of our assurance is grasping on to that. Oh, that it depends upon what the Lord is doing on my life. Can you take comfort from that? Can you take joy from that? Can you rest in that? Oh, the greatness of the grace of this God who has sealed me under that day of redemption. So to be sealed means that we are owned by God. It means that we are authenticated as his. The third thing which our sealing indicates is the idea of protection. Protection. It means on the one hand that we are going to be protected on that day of judgment. Do you remember how chapter 6 ended? The great day of their wrath has come and who can stand on the day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb? Who can stand? Well, we're going to see uh, in a future week, chapter 7 and verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, doing what? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The indication is that there are those who are going to be able to stand on that great day of wrath. And who are they? They are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who can stand. Well, dear friends, if you and I, being redeemed by his blood, are going to be able to stand, be protected so that we can stand on the day of his judgment, it means as well that you and I are going to be protected every day that leads to that final day of God's judgment. And that really is the theme here of these first few verses of Revelation 7. It says there, it speaks of four angels who are standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of uh, the earth. So it refers to these angels as emissaries of the living God uh, demonstrating the sovereignty of God And they are restraining, as it were, the winds of the earth. Now, when it's describing the winds here, you ought not to think of that pleasant, gentle breeze on a hot July day that brings you refreshment. But rather, rather these winds are representing what we might call uh, tempestuous, hurricane-force winds that bring destruction in its path. Have you ever seen an area where a tornado has ripped through? And you can see exactly where that path of that tornado has gone because the winds bring destruction. That's what's being referred to here. And so it's saying that there are these 
destructive winds that are about to go throughout all of the earth. In fact, these winds uh, represented by these four angels really are uh, the same. They can be equated with the four horsemen of of, uh, Revelation chapter 6. And actually, in Zechariah 6 and verse 5, uh, one of the primary Old Testament backgrounds to these chapters, that exact equation is made between the horsemen and the winds. So these are representing essentially the same things. Okay, And so it's that these winds, these destructive, terrifying winds are about to extend throughout all of the earth. But then suddenly, verse 2, we read there of another angel ascending from the east, the rising of the sun, the place of blessing. And this angel says with a loud voice to the four other angels who have been given power to harm the earth and the sea, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. That is, do not rip through civilization with all of its inhabitants until what? Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. He is saying, amidst all of the destruction and terror, we are going to make sure that those who belong to the Lord are safe. That they are protected. That they are kept. That they are secure. What a beautiful thought this is. This doesn't mean that you and I are going to be protected from every physical calamity that comes upon people on this earth. Right? Revelation 6 described for us martyrs who are under the altar that experienced the pain of death at the hands of others for the cause of Jesus Christ. So there is no promise in Scripture that says that a hurricane or a tornado or that a sudden illness or that a loss or that war or that famine or that any other destructive force will never come upon a true child of God. Sometimes they do. But the promise is this, that when that comes upon you, it is coming upon you only at the will of and for the sovereign and good purposes of your God whose hand of protection is upon you. And nothing will ever touch you apart from his hand and purpose. And so that same illness or hurricane or fire or other destructive thing which might come upon the ungodly as a means of their judgment always comes upon the children of God, not as a way of judging us, but as a way of further sanctifying us and preparing us for glory. That in whatever happens to us, it comes to us from the hand of the Almighty God who loves us and who has sealed us to be his own. And that he will not allow anything to touch us that does not involve his good and sovereign and glorious purpose for our lives. That's a comfort. Because, dear child of God, if you have been sealed in this way, it means that when you wake up tomorrow and you receive that bit of bad news, whatever it might be, that you can believe that my sovereign, loving God has ordained this for my good. And he is not protecting me one, le- one bit less today than he had been the day before, than he had been the day before that. 
and that he will until I see his face in glory. That's the promise. It's that kind of protection, spiritual protection, the protection of a loving God over our lives. And the assurance of Revelation 7 is if you are a child of God, trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ, you are one who has been sealed. You belong to him. What a comfort that is. Might that encourage our hearts today. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for a passage like this, which tells us of the whole complete church of God, known to you, sealed by the Holy Spirit from every destructive force that might come upon us. Lord, our God in heaven, thank you for such a promise as this. Thank you for your sovereign good purposes in our lives, O Lord, and the way that we can trust you with all that we have. And Lord, as we come to the table now this morning, we pray that you would Assure us again of the greatness of your love, your love which has sent for us the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior, and which promises not only present salvation in Christ, but persevering grace to the end. O Lord our God, bless us, strengthen us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.